today is Dr. Linda Shaw, a business psychologist and cognitive neuroscientist. Join us as we learn how to unlock the secrets of the mind and how understanding neuroscience can make you more of an effective leader. business psychologist and cognitive neuroscientist. Can you tell us more about your business journey? Well, sure. I've, uh, I've worked in a number of sectors. Uh, I was even cabin crew when I first left school because I wanted to travel. Um, in those days, nobody had a gap year. I hadn't even heard of one. So I, I became cabin crew for four and a half years, which I loved. And um, in the good old days, when we had time off to explore with my camera in hand, I've also been a gym owner, I've been a personal trainer, orthopedic exercise teacher, I've done actually quite a lot. And then um, bizarrely, when my father died suddenly, it threw me to the point where I was looking for something different in my life and I went off traveling um, and I came back and was absolutely hell bent on wanting to study social anthropology. Um, but the, I had small children, so I couldn't go off anywhere in the UK I had to be local for them. So therefore I decided to, I had to st study psychology with social anthropology. So it was halfway through the course that I realized how incredibly difficult social anthropology is because it's about life. It's hugely difficult. So I, I, I actually um, found that I was better at psychology because I could focus things better. So then I went on to complete a master's in psychology and I got a doctorate in cognitive neuropsychology. So I was um, basically studying about for about just over about nine years, I think, full time. Um, my topic then was very much about unconscious processing of emotion. And I sort of when I when I got my degree, uh, my, all my degrees, I then decided to um, try lecturing in university for a while. But because I've got a business head it um, didn't, didn't sit with me so well. So I've mushed it all together as a business psychologist and neuroscientist, and there you know the rest. I just love what I do. So that's how I got to be where I am at the moment. That's quite the journey. Well, can you tell us more about neuroscience and how understanding its concepts can lead to better business decisions? Yeah, absolutely. The um, neuroscience and psychology, they look at how the brain forms habits, how it makes decisions, how it deals with problems, how it communicates well, how it, le it leverages emotions effectively, how it can avoid conflict, all of those things that we very much need in business. So understanding all of this and a little bit about neuroscience and how it works in the brain actually enables us to be stronger and, and create stronger working relationships as well, which in turn, of course, benefits business. So, for example, um, if you have a greater awareness of how your customers and your employees are thinking and behaving, then yeah, that can facilitate loyalty and more, and more collaborative workforce and indeed loyalty with, with your customers. So what are the best and hardest things about your work? Oh, the best. I love my job. Um, I thoroughly enjoy working with people and seeing them flourish and succeed, to be honest. Um, if I can understand, if I can help them understand the power of their mindset, and um, it enables them to therefore change their destiny, and that's incredibly empowering and really amazing to work with. Also, um, I like to make put fun back into life. We have some of us. We have very serious jobs to do. 
but we don't have to take ourselves seriously. And I enjoy that side of my life as well in, in terms of helping people feel that they're having fun at work and therefore being more effective. So um, the, the hardest part of what I do is actually staying ahead of the research. My lovely neuroscience colleagues are very busy beavering away at, that, uh, at latest experiments and whatever they're doing. And I need to keep abreast of that so that I can explain um, those latest findings to keep everybody up to date, but equally uh, explain them in a very in a way that is um, usable and practical uh, with a very much an applied application on that day. So that's tough. It's hard to keep abreast of it because we're looking at global global research. But um, I have my sources that um, um, help me keep keep on top of it. That all sounds very challenging. What's been your proudest achievement to date so far? Oh, my proudest moment in, in, in career to date. Well, again, seeing each of my clients feeling greater control of their destiny makes me feel very proud every single time. But at the moment, I've got some news in that I am the uh, national president of this professional speaking association, uh, which has 13 regions. We've got 600 members throughout the UK and Ireland. And so, and we're also part of the Global Speakers Federation. So I'm very proud to be national president. Oh, that's quite an accomplishment. What skills are vital for your work? I, I need to be able to um, interpret tech, technical knowledge and understand complicated research and translate it into bite-sized pieces of practical information for my clients. But on top of that, I also need to communicate very, very well. Um, and I also um, need to understand my clients and their level of expertise and what they want to do with that information, because I personalise everything to each person. So therefore, collaboration is also very important. You must be very busy. What does an average day look like? <laughs> now, there's an interesting one. My average day. Here's my average day that looked like until about a couple of months ago. I would get to the gym by seven o'clock in the morning and I would be at my desk by 9.30 and I'd finish my working day by six o'clock. Hey, that would be really good. Um, and then some days I, I clearly would have to work a bit later, especially if I'm delivering later. And then I focus on the three stages of my day, which is research, writing and delivery. However, goodness me, um, I'm finding I am busier and busier and busier. So my schedule, my ideal working day or my average working day isn't quite so average at the moment. I've got to rethink a few things. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wear many hats from online coaching, public speaking to consultancy work. What do you enjoy most? Honestly, I really love it all. I especially, I love the variety. Anything I can do with communicating with people, with interacting with people makes me very happy. I like if I'm working on stage or indeed if I am delivering online, I like to work with an audience and change my delivery depending on their reaction and their response to what I'm saying so that I personalize it more to them. And this can be uh, clearly I translate this online as well, but uh, it's because of the pandemic, but because online and virtual is not going away. Um, it's going to be here a very long time indefinitely but I think we are all craving human contact so I'm hoping that I'll be back in the room with with my clients um, in the not too distant future. So with such a demanding work schedule how do you maintain a work-life balance? Not very well. 
Um, for me personally, I'm not doing a good job of that at the moment because I think the boundaries between work and personal life are increasingly becoming vague, which is why so often people are trying to strike the right, the right balance. Um, so the work and the, and the life is like, well, work is part of our life, isn't it? So how can we separate the two? And of course, working from home so much, it's getting harder and harder. But having said that, it's really important that we set some boundaries and respect them. So I'm lucky in what I love what I do, but I do, I do recognise that it's a work in progress all of the time. So I'm, I, love to, I love to be, and I'm a tra venture traveller. I love adventure travelling. But of course, that has not happened for some time. And equally, we do have to consider the environment as well. So I'm not sure that where that's going. So a healthy lifestyle and bearing in and keeping in mind those boundaries are important. In fact, there was a lovely, um, I, I read the other day, a chap who decides to fake commuting to work. So what he does is he, in the morning, he goes for a walk as if he was walking to the office gets home, works, and then goes for a walk as if he's walking home, gets home and carries on his life. I thought that was rather good. Oh, that sounds like an interesting chap. So what advice can you give to maintain a good work-life balance and to avoid burnout? It's a really big deal, um, avoiding burnout at the moment. It's never been such a problem as it is at the moment, I'm sure. Um, the evidence is very clear and people are are constantly near the edge of burnout for in all sorts of industries, all sorts of sectors. So I think what we need to do is be very aware of it and to, and to know the signs of the burnout. Like if we're not sleeping well, or we are not eating properly, or we're agitated, or we're short-tempered, all of those things are very loud signals that we are struggling to maintain a balance in our lives and we have to um, try to avoid that and the way we avoid it is by looking at those signals and thinking okay this is real this is real I've, I've got to do something about it so switch off the screen go for that walk go to the gym go for whatever you want to do drink lots of water the things we know about but sometimes we tend to ignore when we're very busy and how does understanding neuroscience fit into this the concept of, um, of, of neuroscience is this. When we, when we know that the brain changes our behavior and our, our behavior changes our brain, that is the sweet spot. That means that we, are, we can be more effective in, in leadership because we know, in actual fact, leadership starts with neurons. It actually starts with your thoughts, your ideas, your habits, your behavior your productivity, it happens in the brain. So what we need to do is we need to use neuroscience to help leaders be more effective and agile and having an insight into how their own behavior and other people's behavior works and why they do things, because that means they will understand their employees and customers much better. Would you say that many business leaders have yet to realize their true potential? Yeah, I, I do think um, business leaders, have, a lot of business leaders have not discovered their true potential, partly because um, often we are promoted into positions because we were good at our last job and therefore we're not ready for the next job. So we are feeling overwhelmed. Imposter syndrome is rife. Imposter syndrome happens often with high achieving, intelligent people. So, and, and others as well, but often with that, that sector. So we, what we do is we are promoted into a, into a position and um, all of our dreams, our aspirations, our visions are just buried 
because we're trying to keep abreast of this, what was, was expected of us and not to be seen as not knowing what we're doing, which is very difficult. Um, and sadly, a lot, of, a lot of business leaders do not have the advantage of any kind of training. So it is important, I think, that we, um, we business leaders realize this so that they can explore their true potential and indeed benefit the company more. So can you learn to become an effective communicator? Yeah, yeah, you can become a, a more effective communicator. You can become a more, more um, effective communicator by um, being transparent in your communication, um, by talking in terms of it being easy to follow rather than these dense, opaque, often contradictory problems, which can be a major risk factor for business. So if you are clear and you are consistent with your communication and you support your actions by, by um, with, with what you say you're doing, you actually do it. So you, you, you under promise, but overachieve. You show people what you're doing. I think all of those things can help enormously. And understand also that the brain doesn't do gaps. So if you have got people who work for you who are uncertain of what's going on because they've not been told, then you need to tell them because otherwise they're going to make it up. That's what we do. It's, it's natural for our brain to make up information gleaned from gossip often or the latest on the news or whatever's going on. We glean that information and that is therefore becomes our truth. Whereas it's so much better if, 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 our, if the bosses actually communicate better by being consistent, by being transparent and being easy to follow. So what are the essential characteristics that a good leader should have? A communicator, clearly, to be a good communicator, obviously, um, I always, always. I think um, being agile and flexible, so it, you, I think to be a really good leader, you need to be able to make fast decisions, very fast decisions, but equally be ready to change those decisions, be agile and adapt, and not be, not be wed to those decisions to the point of being detrimental to the business. So we need to set our course and then be flexible to come off the path and reset the course if need be. And we need to be self-aware. Business leaders really do need to be self-aware of <coughs> how they're responding to people, how what their emotional reactions are, how they are, are focusing their attention and how they are thinking. They need to be calmer. They need to feel engaged more and um, driven and be in control of their behavior. I think that is very important. We hear an awful lot about emotional intelligence, and for some people that is anathema. However, it is really wise that we do try to um, understand people as best we can um, and, and employ those parts of the brain that does that very thing. So we're understanding um, sensory information or understanding emotions and, and, and thoughts of other people and how that impacts their behavior. I also think that um, a, a very good leader possesses a, um, a high level of intuition and some research suggests that um, intuition comes from unconscious memories. So if you are um, experienced in what you are doing, you have got a, a better chance of, of relying upon your intuition because it's unconscious memories that are coming to the fore. If you are in an inexperienced situation, then perhaps not relying on your intuition so much is, is a good idea. Of course, building trust and rapport are absolutely vital for all working relationships. Trust and rapport are, are a 
they're, are vital. So there are a few of the, uh, the traits that are essential for a good leader. Okay, so what can we learn from bad leadership examples? Bad leadership examples, indecisiveness, inconsistency, people who don't respect one another, people who do not listen to people around them and hear them properly, poor communicators. Um, and one of, the, one of the most senior CEOs I've ever met, he always used to say, you only have to apologize for the truth once. So I think that's a lesson for us all to learn in terms of bad leadership. If you are, if you've done something wrong or something has gone wrong, say it like it is, be honest up front, and then you can get on with life. Yes, I completely agree. So who would you consider to be some of the most effective leaders in modern times? Well, the obvious one is Steve Jobs, of course. He was an excellent communicator. He used stories brilliantly to communicate with anyone he spoke with. He was innovative, obviously. He knew how to bring others um, together with him by sharing his vision. He had integrity. He led by example. I think Steve Jobs is one of the, one, a very effective leader in recent times. There is one that's less, ob less obvious, which I have been watching, and that's John Sim Timpson. John Timpson has a family business he's running that I think he's third generation of Timpson shoe repairers. And goodness me, he is proving to be an excellent leader with his staff. In fact, um, one of his um, uh, measures of success is that a one quarter a year, he measures how happy the employees are by work, by researching to see how much, how well the managers know their staff. I think that's very good, very good sign of an effective leader. You oppose conventional forms of multitasking. Why so? In order to multitask, we need to divide our attention and our prefrontal cortex chooses what we pay attention to. That's the bit of the brain at the very front. Now, if we are trying to do more than one thing at a time, that takes attention. So we are in fact switching between tasks. So there is no such thing as multitasking. There is only switching between tasks. And quite frankly, it's exhausting and can make us agitated. And it's got huge implications for learning and memory as well. So ironically, we sometimes pat ourselves on the back because we have this illusion that we are being productive, but actually we're not accomplishing as much as we think. So when we believe we're multitasking, we're not doing ourselves or our organization any favors. In fact, research shows that when people think they're multitasking or try to multitask, they actually cost the organization a huge amount of money and a lot of wasted valuable time. Can you explain to our listeners more about what brain fog is? Brain fog. Now, brain fog is when actually you can't think clearly. Um, you are uh, confused, you're disorganized, you find it really, really hard to focus, and even sometimes you can't get your words out clearly. That is the effect of brain fog and often comes from being in a state of overwhelm. So how can you overcome brain fog? Well, clearly we um, always do the things that we know we should be doing, which is prioritising our health. Um, sleep is huge. I cannot, cannot emphasise how important sleep is. I really can't. It's one of the most important things we can do for our health and also the one of the things that's overlooked. 
So we need to keep the stress levels low. We need to keep exercise. We need to stay off the coffee if possible, one a day um, in the morning, perhaps, that's a decent cup of coffee, that's a treat. All of those things, keep the stress levels down, as I say, eat well, drink lots of water, socialize, be, have some fun in your life. All of those things will help our thinking and turn off sometimes. So can you give our listeners some tips on how to improve their memory skills? Well, if you are in a high state of, of stress or anxiety, that will impair your memory. So first of all, we need to address the obvious things like trying to uh, el uh, eliminate too much stress. You won't eliminate it completely because a certain amount of stress is actually good for us. Cortisol, the stress hormone in, in small secretions, keeps us sharp, keeps us thinking well. But in a chronic situation um, and in uh, high levels of secretions, then that is very bad for us in terms of our memory. So therefore, um, I'm, I'm a great one for sleeping on it. If you are trying to improve your memory skills, I suggest um, uh, thinking about things before you go to sleep and then just having a good night's rest and you'll be surprised what comes up next morning. Also, when we are working with memory skills, um, it's a good idea to chunk information. You could use mnemonics, you can use all sorts of, all sorts of tricks, um, but chunking information into some kind of relationship with one another helps you remember things as well. And enjoy it. Remember, having fun will put the brain in a good, good state. You previously discussed the concept of toxic positivity. Tell us more. Toxic positivity can come in the form of advice from someone else who possibly unwittingly invalidates your feelings when you're feeling low or stops you feeling justified that your situation is a, is a problem. So, so they might say things like, um, oh, things could be worse, which actually makes light of your experience. And actually that makes you feel as if you're not worthy of being worried about something. So toxic positivity also occurs when we feel we have to be positive all of the time. Everybody talks about being positive mindset, positive frame of thinking. But the thing is, um, it, we have things that hurt us. We have pain and we need to acknowledge that. You can't, we can't be shamed into thinking that we, shouldn't be, we should be feeling better. Or we can't have, have lower our self-esteem by think, saying, think to ourselves that, feeling anxious is stupid, or I've no right to be fed up, or look how many people are suffering in the world, and all of those invalidating types of things that people say. So people are trying to be helpful, but in actual fact, they're not being helpful because they're making us feel worse, because they're making us feel that we haven't got any right to feel bad. So the, the, we have got a right to feel bad. And remember this, every emotion is valuable, every one of them. So we need to be very careful of toxic positivity. So why do you consider it being on the rise of late? I think um, many of us have suffered a hardship, anxiety, low mood during the pandemic. And we forced ourselves, we pushed ourselves and we've urged others to push, push themselves to get to keep going. And we have this sort of Dunkirk spirit thing, you know, we've got to keep going, we've got to keep the side up and we're swallowing those feelings and we've got to count ourselves lucky and my goodness, we're here. You know, we haven't, have we survived the pandemic or hopefully we've survived it so far and then we're going to be absolutely fine. And then we're also watching online um, 
people flaunting their new wonderful hobbits or revealing their lockdown achievements, maybe how much money they've saved or they've been making bread or all of the, they've got this amazing garden and, and people playing happy families. All of this stuff adds to false realities because those little snippets we see on social media are tiny in someone's life. We don't, all, we don't know what's really going on. So I think social media hasn't helped at all. And also the kind of positivity overload encourages us to compare our, ourselves, compare cultures, compare ourselves with um, other people in our neighborhood, compare ourselves with other people in our industry. So therefore we start to become even more critical of ourselves. So this pressure we have of being positive all the time is really not a good idea. It is good to feel the failures or the so-called failures that we have and just say, you know what, I'm doing my best. Dealing with stress and workplace anxiety poses a challenge for senior management. What advice can you give to those in leadership positions for both themselves and the care of their employees? Yeah, I think the, the biggest problem with um, stress and for senior leaders and anybody who has got a staff to consider is that they're expected to be pseudo-psychologists. Everybody is supposed to be really worrying about, and they should be really worrying about the mental health of their workforce, but it's not fair. It's not fair on senior people to um, worry to that extent because they've got a business to run. And equally, it's frightening because they don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to do the wrong thing. So why we need to look up, whilst we need to look after one another and take care of the people who work for us, we must also recognize our limitations in doing that so we, and, and respect the fact that we have other people in the workforce to look after as well. So if things are bad, I think um, it's a good idea that professional help is, uh, is, um, is recommended. So tell me, what's your one year and five year plan? Oh gosh, I don't have um, five year plans, um, partly because uh, Everything's changing so quickly. Yes, we do need to put plans in place and follow them. And I do have some, I do have some plans in place which are shorter term. Like I am, I am delegating a lot more in my business, which I'm finding is is vital for my health and for progress. So that is one of my personal uh, uh, things that I'm doing in terms of planning. But equally, I'm very aware that I need to look out for the curveballs. I need to stay ahead of what the marketplace is doing. I need to realize that people are having to be more innovative, more creative than ever before. So if we are going to be setting out a five-year plan, we really do need to realize that we will probably change way before that five years is up. So is there any parting advice that you wish to give our listeners? Do you know, something's very interesting is when we put the brain in a pleasurable state, we're the most effective and the efficient we can be. And the best way of doing that is through kindness, generosity and altruism. Because we then stimulate a chemical called nitric oxide and nitric oxide actually suppresses cortisol, the stress hormone, does an awful lot of other things as well. And we can get nitric oxide from our diet, from exercise. But best of all, it actually is through kindness, generosity and altruism. So when we put the brain in a pleasurable state, we really are doing ourselves good, our, our colleagues good and our business good. And where is it written? It shouldn't be fun.
I've not seen that anywhere. So it, the more fun we can have in our business, the more effective we will be and the more loyalty we will create.